Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word here through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're looking at the attributes of God as the Lord himself describes them in Psalm 11. The title for our study today is called The Purpose for Tests and Trials. <laughs> I bet you're all interested in that, right? But real quick, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies, please take a second and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast and also telling people about it on social media, sharing it with the people that you know. Look, a simple tap of the like or the share button could actually help put the true gospel of Jesus Christ in front of someone's eyes, maybe even for the first time, or encourage a believer who really needs it, right? And if we're talking about the purpose for tests and trials, <laughs> there might be someone who needs it. And that's what we all want. Amen? So enough of that. Let's check these verses. In Psalm 11, here's what the Bible says. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. All right, so whether a believer in the Bible or not, it's commonly known to all people that all people suffer to some degree, right? If we're honest with ourselves, no one can deny that. Life is hard for everyone. Even though a lot of people kind of front about this and try to pretend like their lives don't have any issues, <laughs> over time, the energy required to hold up those disguises, it, it wears down, right? And the truth comes out in some way. There's no shame in admitting that life is hard. Everyone has to deal with the curse of sin, whether we acknowledge that as the cause of difficulty or not. It is what it is. We live in a fallen and corrupted world filled with injustice, with decay, and of course, with death. How can life be simple and pleasurable all the time without frustrations and trials if God himself is the one that cursed the world that we lived in because of sin? Look, the Bible teaches that God is not a respecter of persons, which means that he doesn't play favorites. And so both believers and non-believers alike have to deal with suffering and difficulty to some degree. However, there is one important truth to consider that the Bible makes very clear. Even though both believers and non-believers suffer trials in life, only the believer's suffering produces profit and blessing. This reality is clearly declared in Psalm 11. Psalm 11 is a psalm written by King David, a guy who was pretty familiar with suffering of trials, right? <laughs> and he discusses the tests and trials that God places upon all people through his own experience. David wrote about the difference between the trials that God's people go through and the trials that non-believers go through. 
Even though it might seem like we all go through the same types of things from an outward appearance, the Bible sheds light on God's perspective, and that's the one that matters, right? The Bible explains God's motives about this issue to teach us why the righteous suffer for one purpose, but the wicked suffer for a totally different purpose. Both the righteous and the wicked do suffer, but God's motives behind each type of suffering is very different. Now, David, being a man after God's own heart, began by stating the truths about the suffering of the righteous. The context of Psalm 11 identifies the righteous as the people who are upright, which refers to those who trust in the Lord, especially during times of trial. Remember that the book of Job identified Job as an upright man. He certainly experienced trials. And while he struggled with self-righteousness and self-entitlement issues through his trials, he never wavered in his faith in God to restore and redeem his soul at some point in time. Job definitely despised the condition of his life because of his trials, but he never doubted the integrity, the faithfulness, and the righteousness of God. Job never lost sight of the hope of eternal life that comes from God. He knew he would get that from God. He never cursed God because of his bitterness about his circumstances. Job never accused God of being wrong or unrighteous just because life got hard for him. Job trusted that God was right and good no matter what, no matter what his life looked like, because it was definitely on the wrong side of things and on the terrible side of things, right? That's what it means to trust in the Lord, where God declares people with this kind of faith to be righteous and upright. This is the same quality of uprightness that David referred to in Psalm 11. This is what a righteous person refers to in Psalm 11. When David began writing Psalm 11, here's what he wrote. In the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So here David described the proper attitude that the righteous should have in the midst of their trials. David assured his readers that he trusted the Lord himself, right? He's trying to lead by example here. The Hebrew word that David used to identify God in this intro part of the Psalm is important. He used the Hebrew word Yahweh, which refers to God's eternally self-existing and self-sustaining nature as the creator and controller of all things in heaven and earth, who uniquely connected himself to the world through his covenants with Israel. David trusted the Lord, and he trusted the Lord because the Lord is Yahweh. That's what he knew about him, right? It wasn't just a title to David. There were things that came with that title that explained to David who God was. David trusted God because he is highly exalted above all things as the creator. David trusted the Lord because he knew who God was as the source of all power, strength, force, might, ability, wisdom, knowledge, control, authority, and so forth, right? David trusted the Lord because he knew that God's identity as Yahweh identified God as the standard of righteousness and goodness. God is the source of all things that are right and good. David trusted the Lord because he knew that God was unchanging and faithful as Yahweh, especially to the covenants that he made with Israel, even with David himself. Now, since God is all of these things, <laughs> what other person or place is there that is equally trustworthy? Where else is there to go to gain the help, comfort, and ability that God provides? Who compares to God in these ways? Who has these sorts of attributes, right? Since the righteous are those who know and trust in the identity, character, and nature of God as Yahweh, according to the testimony of his word, where else would we go 
for help in a time of need that compares to God's ability and track record as our helper and savior documented in the scriptures. This is why David asked a question in the beginning. He was directing that question to either surrounding influences who tried to deter him from the Lord, or David might have even been questioning his own flesh that may have panicked a little bit by natural instinct to the trials that he was facing. Either way, David knew God as Yahweh. How then could he go anywhere else for help in his time of need except God, the creator and controller of all things in heaven and earth? Now, according to the scriptures, it seems that David had doubts for just a moment. (laughs) This doubt could have been provoked by surrounding influences or again by the weakness of his own flesh. Either way, that doubt was pretty short-lived. He was like, how could I just go run and hide when this is what I know about who God is? Didn't take long for him to get back on track. David referred to God as Yahweh, reminding himself that he is the God most high and the one true living God that has charge and dominion over all things in heaven and earth. Since David knew who God was through the testimony of God's own word and understood the magnitude of God's authority, control, mercy, grace, and of course his glory, why would David try to run from his problems? Was the great I am weak so that he couldn't help David face his opposition? Was Yahweh Elohim too old to help? Was the one true living God unaware of David's circumstances? Is God ashamed of his people so that he turns his back to us when we're in trouble? Come on now. David knew that God was in favor of him. David knew that he was an heir to the eternally unconditional promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David knew that he was a special person that God himself called and anointed to be the king of Israel. David knew that he was the heir of a special covenant that God made even with him concerning the revelation of the Messiah through the kingship that David would lay the foundation for. Why then would God not be David's help, support, comfort, provider, and shepherd in his time of need? Does God call people to be his so that he can set them up for failure? No. Does God make promises that are too hard to fulfill? Of course not. Does God forget about his covenants and the benefits he's supposed to bring through the fulfillment of them? No. Is God's integrity so weak that David needed to run from his trials to try and invent his own form of escape and deliverance? Look, Abraham believed in God to the extent that he raised a knife above the chest of his own son that was tied up to an altar according to the command of God. Now he did that to give Isaac as a burnt offering to God, believing that God would raise him up from the dead if necessary in order to fulfill the promises made concerning Isaac. Now that's faith. David knew God in a similar way and knew that running from problems simply reflected a weakness in his faith concerning God's integrity, God's power, wisdom, and faithfulness. Why then should David fear opposition, threats, and trials to the point where he stops trusting God? Look, it's one thing to express concern and natural fear of circumstances. I mean, everyone does that. But it's a whole other thing to be governed by that fear and concern to the point that we try to run from God's purposes, trying to manufacture a better life for ourselves at the expense of God's purpose and calling for our lives. The full testimony of David in scripture shows that he often expressed a lot of fear and concern about his problems, and rightly so. He had to deal with some legit life-threatening stuff. Still, those fears and concerns didn't cause him to stop trusting in the Lord, 
right? The Lord who is faithful and able to do what he says at all times, no matter what we're going through or how things seem to us. So David stuck it out and dealt with the people who tried to take his life, trusting God would preserve his life until the fulfillment of God's purposes for his life. And if not, just like Job, David trusted that God would certainly preserve his soul for eternal life. That's the issue there. This is the way an upright person deals with trials. Even though our trials, our opposition, and the enemy might cause things to look pretty chaotic and crazy, the upright and faithful never allow fear to strip our confidence in who the Lord is and what he said. Why was David able to be so confident? Psalm 11 shows that David found perseverance and confidence in knowing the identity of the Lord based on the testimony of the Lord's word. Instead of focusing on his issues, David made outward proclamations about the truth of who God is. Now, when you look at the beginning, we see that he did have an interruption to his flow of faith there, right? He had to remind himself about something. But in verse four, here's what David said. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God is exalted in glory in his holy temple, where the effects of sin and darkness cannot touch him. This means that no matter how deep into darkness we may find ourselves, God is not affected in the slightest. When Jesus came into the world, he proved it. He remained pure, holy, and righteous. He lived in a corrupted world with sinners and remained totally perfect as God in flesh. Even though Jesus was tempted in every way as we are tempted, he never sinned not even a sinful thought. He became a curse on our behalf, but still remained the pure lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and did so without any spot or blemish of any kind. Our issues don't affect God's nature, his position, or his character. And since Jesus is God in flesh, his public testimony documented by historical narrative in the Bible proves why God is most qualified and trustworthy, especially when things go down and look kind of crazy. Also, David remembered that God's throne is in heaven. Now, this seems like an obvious statement, but it's really important. God is exalted above all things and all people. He is seated in the throne of absolute sovereign control. He sees all things from that perspective. He hears all things from that perspective. He knows all things. The position and glory of his throne prove that he is supremely qualified to deal with all things because he is the administrator and the enabler of all things. So trials for believers like David, they take place because God is the cause, but also the regulator and administrator of the severity of the trial. This means that God determines the outcome for those trials and the timing of those outcomes. Now, God doesn't just allow trials to come into our lives like some people think. According to the Bible, God is the manufacturer of trials. Trials that are specially constructed for believers in order to accomplish God's unique and eternal purposes. Notice that David understood this truth because of what he knew about God through the word. David also trusted that God is holy, controlling all things, and has all the integrity in the world. So, God purposefully 
detests the sons of men. That's the phrase that's used in the Bible. Yup, God tests people. He puts all people, believers and non-believers alike, in circumstances that provide public evidence of things concerning the heart that only he knows. Now, the Bible teaches that it's times of trials and difficulty that a believer's faith is made publicly known because it's in that time when a person's trust in the Lord becomes most evident. It's at that time, the time of our suffering through trials, that God proves himself to be wise, powerful, faithful, and trustworthy to the people who are witnessing the trials that we go through and our response to them. And keep this in mind, God doesn't have to deliver us from our trials by some radical miracle that we're hoping for in order to prove himself. Now, on the other hand, it's in the same time of trial that the non-believer's unbelief is publicly displayed. When life gets crazy, it's easier to see where people put their trust. When non-believers go through trials, it's clearer to see that they place trust for their lives in themselves or the ways of the world, definitely not God. They exercise their own wisdom and efforts to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? Trying to fix their lives by their own effort and their own creative thinking. They do not call on the Lord or certainly don't seek the Lord through his word. Now, the Hebrew word for test in verse five is a really important word here. It's a word that refers to proving something. The tests that God brings are designed either to prove a person as a believer or expose them as a non-believer. Huh, how about that? Now, we tend to think that God tests us in like a pass or fail type of way, right? We either expect to pass or fail, but that's not how the Bible teaches we should consider these things as believers. The truth is God sees the hearts of all people as the holy God who dwells in heaven above all things. So tests and trials in life make the things that God knows about every human heart publicly evident. Those who believe will keep trusting in the Lord through their trials, seeking him the way that scripture shows in spite of the difficulty, a lot like Job. This sort of witness proves that person's faith. And by extension, it brings glory to God since he's the one providing the fuel for that faith, which at the end produces eternal life where he's really validated, right? It's different for the wicked. They go through hardships too, but they don't seek the Lord for help. Now in this way, God's righteousness is validated when he judges them for rejecting him, since it was publicly evident that those people trusted in themselves rather than him as the creator and controller of all life. Psalm 11 shows that there is a dramatic difference in the purpose of the Lord and how he administrates these tests. God tests all people as the sons of men, simply meaning that we're all human beings and every one of us gets tested. We already know that God tests the righteous. However, the language of Psalm 11 shows that there is a great contrast to the quality of testing that God does with the wicked. The Bible says, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Whew. The Lord uses trials in the lives of believers to strengthen and improve their faith, where in the end, he is glorified and he's pleased, and then we get eternal life. That's great. The wicked, on the other hand, are tested on the premise of God's anger. The trials of the wicked and violent people are very different. God hates 
the souls of those who don't trust in him. The Bible teaches that it's impossible to please God without faith in him. And so it shouldn't be any surprise that God hates the souls of those who reject the revelation of his glory and deny his gracious offer of mercy, comfort, deliverance, and help of all kinds. God hates the souls of those who refuse to admit the need for help and feel that they're capable all on their own. God hates the souls of those who deny his superiority by living confidently in ability that God actually mercifully provides, denying him as the source of life. When the Bible says that the Lord hates the souls of these people, it refers to the fact that God deals with these people as his enemies. That's not the place we want to be, right? The trials that the wicked, the proud, and the self-righteous have to deal with are trials set to expose the futility of their self-reliance, independence, and self-righteousness, right? They are not as self-empowered as they think. The trials that God heaves at the wicked are delivered in order to prove that he is supremely right and good while the wicked are futile in their arrogance. They don't have the ability and knowledge that they think. And their trials and the outcome of them in the end will prove that true. God promises that the wicked will be condemned in the end. And it doesn't matter how they look when they deal with their problems in this life. It might seem like the wicked are able to persevere and escape certain trials with success right now. The Bible teaches that God will rain coals and bring fire and brimstone against those living, trusting in self rather than trusting in him. The trials of their lives and the manner in which they deal with them will prove God's judgments right at some point in time, maybe in this life, but definitely in the next. Since the wicked don't rely on God in their time of need, he will be right to judge them in the manner that he does in the end. And the Bible testifies that nobody is going to disagree with God's judgments at that time, not even the people who are condemned. On the other hand, the upright will receive the greatest of rewards. Here's what David wrote again. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The Bible promises that those who walk by faith in the identity, purposes, and promises of God will get to see the glory of God's righteousness. Whoa, right? David knew that the benefits of his faith were because of God's own righteousness, not his own. He wrote plenty of other Psalms that showed he knew he didn't have his own righteousness. And the basis for faith for any believer, we agree with that. Notice how the scriptures identify the faithful as righteous and upright, but it's only because the Lord, right, Yahweh, is the source of righteousness. Again, we don't have our own righteousness. Those who build up their lives on the foundation of faith in the God of the Bible, they're the ones that reap the benefits of his character and nature. His righteousness will flow through his people who live for him by faith because he loves righteousness. Notice that while God is righteous, he also loves righteousness, which means that God loves the effect of his own character and nature flowing through the lives of his people. He loves seeing the reflection of his righteousness in his people when he enables them through the trials that prove our faith. So God allows his face to shine upon those who live by faith in this manner, like David and even like Job. Jesus said it more simply this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The people of God 
can rest assured with confidence in the midst of trials, not having to be governed by our initial fleshly responses to the circumstances that our flesh hates. We can stand fast in the midst of our trials. We don't have to try and find ways to run and hide. We don't have to come up with crazy ways to provide our own way of escape from our problems. We shouldn't be trusting in self like the wicked, right? Instead, like David, we can remember who our Savior is and the things he's already done to prove he is trustworthy. God promised that those who walk according to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ will receive spiritual cleansing in order to be pure in heart from God's work, ultimately having the blessing and opportunity to see God in all of his glory. Do we trust that God will actually do this and that this promise is supremely better than all of the things that this life has to offer? If so, King David said it best in this song. In the Lord, I put my trust. And that's what the Bible teaches about the one that we know as God. So look, before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder again to please keep in mind that all of the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that make this stuff available to you, as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree. It takes a lot of time, and believe me, these service providers, they want their money, and stuff ain't getting cheaper, right? If this podcast is actually helpful to you, and you value this sort of teaching, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. We're a legit nonprofit. We have a 501c3 from the IRS operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. Feel free to look us up. If you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing, here's how you do it. You can visit www.pastorbside.com, like the flip side of a record, hit the support tab, and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads you. And believe me, every bit helps. And if the Lord would lead you, maybe consider partnering monthly with us, making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church on a monthly basis, right? Because the church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible, continuing in the apostles' doctrine, and that's exactly what we do here. Something to think about, something to pray about. So again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the study. And until next time, peace out.